more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Brian Lynn. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of those students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU, or former graduate student, and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blogs at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination has been pre-recorded, and today we are lucky to be joined by Dr. Ari Foley, who used to be a student in the School of Nuclear Science and Engineering. Welcome, Ari. Oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? Uh, good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Um, okay, folks, today you're going to have to put on your like physics, not really math, but your physics nuclear science hats because we're going to dive deep into a lot of things related to, I guess, nuclear forensics. So Ari's research um, for her PhD had to do with um, kind of coming up with a more rapid and novel way of detecting nuclear radiation after um, kind of a, a, a nuclear detonation. And so Ari built a whole system to kind of do that in a novel, rapid way. But before we get into all that, Ari, can you explain for us what is nuclear forensics? Uh, yeah, uh, so nuclear forensics is the science of characterizing nuclear materials or radioactive materials um, with the intent of attributing it to its uh, origin or process history, uh, which is a way to figure out where that material came from or um, and how it was processed to be able to like, sort of figure out how it came to be uh, in a device or deviated um, from wherever it originally came from. Right. And obviously, maybe a very basic question, but very important to kind of determine the amounts of of like radiation from a nuclear detonation because it can have horrific like long-term effects right yeah so like for post-detonation specifically which is uh, analysis of that material after uh, a detonation event um there are like signatures or care uh, like characteristics of that material like fallout material um such as like the distribution of different fission products in that material um that could give an indication of sort of attributes of the device where it came from. And then also some other, uh, just like isotopic and elemental uh, and impurity 
uh, attributes of that material that kind of give an indication of where that material would maybe have been processed or had been mined or things like that. So it kind of ranges pretty far. Um, but it's just trying to figure out like, where did this come from? Uh, pretty far down the line of where did it come from? Gotcha. And there's, there obviously currently already like our systems and tools used to kind of determine those characteristics, right? What do those look like or what's that process like? Yeah. So for example, uh, there's a technical nuclear forensics, which is the people that would respond and analyze that material after an event. Um, And so the process of that would be showing up to wherever that event occurred. And then the collection of that material, which typically takes place by people going out into the field um, at various areas and at different timescales from where the detonation occurred. Um, And then collecting that material, uh, which can be like small particulate, uh, very fine particulate or large chunks or things like that, but still things that can be physically collected. And so that kind of looks like taking uh, currently like a Geiger counter, or a radiation counter, and kind of looking over a surface to find high high activity areas, and then collecting that material, and then bringing it back to a, like a an area with a bunch of tents where that material can be separated um, first by like a shaker sieve system where it, it's divided by its size, like its diameter, um, and then uh, for example to kind of find like something that's radioactive as opposed to dirt that's like that same size. Um, for the fine particulate, it might be spread across uh, different types of audio-radiographic uh, methods, such as a film, like film that would get, you know, exposed by the radiation emitted, um, and then that film would be able to give an indication of like where there's like high activity um, regions, and so then those part- particles would be then sort of like brought to the next stage of like analyzing what gamma rays went off of it, uh, what the different um, you know, radiation characteristics that are and then down the line to something that might be destructive um, where, you know, you can get some elemental information or more thorough isotopic information and different things like that. So kind of like a way to optimize, you know, what do we characterize? Like, how do we characterize it and what can we, you know, get as quickly as possible? So the time scale for this sort of like response and then analysis is like of the utmost importance in this particular case. Um, yeah. And in the like current ways, I mean, it sounds like that that is like a pretty like time intensive process if you have to like go out and first like sift through, you know, the area where there's been, you know, the the exposure and then go to an area with tents and then kind of process all those materials. It seems like that could take a really, really long time for something where you probably don't want to be spending too much time because you need to know like what is the impact of this detonation right now. Right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and and so there was this need to create a device or a system that could do this more rapidly, which is kind of where where your PhD work comes in. Yeah. Um. So what my PhD research focused on was creating sort of like a method uh, slash device um, to perform auto radio auto radiography quick more quickly or rapidly. Um, to be able to de- figure out where there's areas of high um, radiation, or specifically beta gamma radiation, which is what's primarily emitted by fission products, um, to sort of like optimize that process of this is of interest to you know continue down the line of analysis. And so 
Um, I, I, my project was creating a method to, to rapidly image, so reducing the time scale it takes to get one of these autoradiographic images. Um, but then also uh, it ended up that in the same exposure you can get this autoradiographic images, image, which gives a spatial distribution of radiation that's emitted um, in that field of view, but also there's enough light um, that an image, like just a traditional image of that field of view can also be taken in the same exposure. So that reduces the time for post-processing significantly because you kind of get everything rather than kind of look, looking at an autoradiograph and then trying to like later map it to where in your field of view those things are and like what exactly is going on, but you get all that information all at once. Um, and the, the you know, motivation is to decrease the time uh, for that sort of like decision-making process, I guess. Right, and you had a really good example with the auto-radiograph that like, rate, like radiography in and of itself is just like, for example, taking an x-ray of your hand, but you then still have to kind of map like, oh, where could this break be on the bone or which bone, whereas the audio-radiograph is able to actually map the, 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 the radioactive material like back onto the object that you're, that you're taking this image of. Yeah, so for just autoradiography in general, what you get is the radiation distribution that's emitted from that object itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if I had three spheres and two of them were radioactive and one of them wasn't, the autoradiograph would show the high, high activity in those areas and sort of the spatial distribution or the shape of that, um, whereas it would not show anything where there's this non-radioactive material. Um, but then for the method that uh, I was working on for my dissertation, um, in this single exposure, you get both the image of if I was to just take an image of those three materials or those three spheres, um, and then also you would get that on top of it or in the same image, you'd be able to see that spatial distribution of the radiation um, and these areas of like high exposure or very like increased intensity in that image. And so you get both a normal image of like, if I could just take a photo of my hand um, and then see, you know, my hand and, you know, my painted fingernails and everything, but then also like where the break is, um, although in that case, I would have to have radioactive bones and that would not be great. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you get both a traditional image and an autoradiographic image in the same exposure, if that yeah. uh, makes sense. So you're basically getting like this two for one deal, right? So it's like a regular camera image plus the autographic image. Do you market it this way? Are you like, hey, look, everyone in the world, instead of buying two things, why don't you buy this thing I created in my PhD? Uh, yeah, well, that was a big selling point for like, please pass me when I, when I defended I'm like, oh yeah, this, 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 this thing. Um, but yeah, that was, I think ended up being the biggest selling point. Um, other than also it reduces the time it takes to take one of these autoradiograph images. So it was, I guess it was a three for one deal. Three for one, even better. We love a sale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do love deals. <laughs> um, and I think, I don't know if we actually mentioned the like actual, we keep talking about like reducing time and long time periods and shorter time periods, but the kind of traditional methods or processes that are used right now can take like 24 hours to like process radioactive material. Whereas your method is like significantly less time, like so, like kind of 50 minutes, an hour. Yeah, so for something like film autoradiography, which is this, you know, film, camera film, or imaging plate uh, autoradiography, which is the other really commonly used method, those, depending on the activity of that material, can take 24 to 48 hours to get like a good image, which only gives you the spatial distribution of the radiation that's emitted from that, or the intensity uh, with respect to the, you know, the object. 
uh, space. Uh, whereas in this case, uh, the maximum image exposure that I did was 50 minutes. Um, but I went down to, I think the lowest one where I got a pretty good image was 30 seconds. Um, and so this, in the seconds to minutes range, and that will depend on how high, how high activity the material is, because you need like the radiation to sort of interact in the thing and make light. Uh, but yeah, it was significantly uh, time reduced as well uh, as being able to take this like multiple types of images in the same exposure, yeah. Yeah, what no one else noticed out there was our jaws literally dropping when you said 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, you'd only mentioned the 50 minutes in our in our like previous discussion. So yeah, I was I was yeah. Brian described it very well. <laughs> Both our jaws dropped. <laughs> yeah, sorry, like I meant my maximum time was 50 minutes. I didn't even explore anything past that, but I was really trying to reduce the time as much as possible. Um and so for you know in the mid uh, like millicurie range or no microcurie range, um, I ended up getting an image that was really good and you I was able to see um, you know, I had the OSU logo on a piece of paper next to the thing and also see the distribution of that uh, calibration source at the same time and I got a pretty good image at 30 seconds, yeah. Like it wasn't the best image in the world, but I think it gave, you know, qualitative and quantitative information in that. Mm. And am I right in assuming that kind of, you know, the higher the like radiation, um, the more likely or the more successful you're going to be with like a short like a shorter exposure, but the the more the time passes from like the detonation event or the exposure, um, like the more time passes, the like harder it is to like pick that up and you probably need a longer exposure time. Um, well, it's, it's not necessarily it's harder to pick it up. It's that it increases, if you have a high activity, it's releasing radiation uh, much more, I guess, rapidly or quickly mm -hmm. at a higher rate. Um, and so there's a higher likelihood that that will interact in the material uh, during whatever your exposure period is, so like 30 seconds, um, so many will, you know, hit hit the crystal that I use for this uh, detection or setup. Um, and then the light, or sorry, the interactions in that material then produce light. And so the the more interactions in that material produces more light. And so the the more light, the, the higher the probability uh, of picking it up from the EMCC to camera was. Um, and so, yeah, like just more light is produced more high activity in this particular method. I mean, it's the same with, you know, the more interactions in film or the more interactions in an imaging plate, uh, you're just increasing the interaction probability uh, and frequency with the higher activity. So yeah, that's kind of like why, because you have more actual like signal than to produce an image with. Right. And so I think um, it's, it's definitely kind of hard to describe on the radio. So we're going to um, include images of this on our blog. So if you want to see kind of both images of what these like audio radiograph images look like, as well as the camera setup, or I guess the, the, the system that Ari built, we're going to have that on our blog, which again is blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. But um, so this EMCCD that you mentioned, that is kind of the, the, the camera system that you built, right? No, um, so kind of I was used in EMCCD camera. Oh, right, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, I definitely don't want to try to take credit for making EMCCD cameras. Here's uh, me just giving you credit for EMCCD on the radio. <laughs> EMCCD cameras uh, is a type of, you know, camera sensor, and the EM stands for electron magnifying, and so you're able to have very, very low light applications in that particular type of sensor, which was then used in conjunction with a scintillator crystal, 
um, which was manufactured to the specifications of sort of this design to make this uh, image or imaging, I guess, method uh, tool. Um, but the e electron magnifying part allows you to do very, 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 very low light applications and take images in that way. And whereas the CCD part uh, is a type of sensor where you, you could take, you know, an image of, you know, anything like it, it's a pretty common type of uh, camera sensor. Um, but the EM part is for low light applications. And so that kind of type of camera specific to like scientific, really low light applications, even like astro astronomy and, you know, I guess that's really the main thing I've seen it used for. Um, in conjunction with this uh, inorganic scintillating crystal, um, yttrium lutinum oxyorthosilicate, um, which is a type of material um, which is manufactured in a large plate so that when radiation interacts with it, it, it produces light of a certain um, wavelength uh, with or proportional to the energy uh, of the radiation that interacts with it. And so mm. it's kind of like in conjunction with this and, you know, light blocked and, you know, trying to optimize the different parameters to make this system work um, as a way to do a lot of radiographic imaging. Right. And the crystal had to be pretty close to the radioactive material or the, the, the fallout material in order to get that light emission and get that image, right? Yeah. So this is a, a like a near field uh, imaging method. Um, so you take like samples or a little sample area as big as the area that is in the scintillator crystal. And that could be really large. Um, the one I was using was 70 uh, millimeter or seven centimeters by seven centimeters because it's very expensive material. Um, but theoretically this could be very large and it could look at a much larger um, field of view. But that material needs to be millimeters from the, the bottom surface of that crystal to then reach um, the surface of the crystal, sorry, the, the radiation reaches the surface crystal and then interacts in that material. Um, if it's farther away, it still works, but mm -hmm. the sort of like probability of the radiation getting there, depending on what type it is, and also the like angular distribution of that is gonna be you know, changed by the, the geometry. And so to get like a really good image that actually maps to where that is in the field of view, uh, the closeness is really important because, you know, it's just farther away to traverse uh, and then interact and it's going to be very well mapped to where that is in the field of view. Let's um, talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the like material, the fallout, the surrogate fallout material that you're testing um, your system, your device on. Because what, what I think is also like super cool about all of this is that you produce that yourself in your master's research, right? Yeah, so for my master's research, one of the things that we are focusing on is a way to better produce fission product distributions. So like the distribution of different fission products is going to be different depending on the incident, um, the energy that's imparted or into that nucleus. And so sort of like if it's very high energy, it's going to change the distribution of like what uh, fission products or, you know, what nuclides are produced. Whereas if it's very low energy, it changes the distribution and so using um, photons or photofission, so it's photon-induced fission, whereas you, people, people typically think of neutron-induced fission. Um, and so then that fission product material can actually, it's much more flexible in the energy that you can impart uh, to produce that fission. And so there, you can adjust that and kind of change the distribution of fission to sort of look like different things. And so that's helpful for trainings. And so that using that fission products to then dope in these like materials that would be 
reflective of both visually um, and a lot of different like attributes, just like the size, the color, things like that. But then also if you do like an analysis of the characteristics, the ra or like the radiation that's emitted by that, you're actually gonna be able to get, have similar signatures to something that would actually be you know, useful in a situation. Uh, like if there was to be, you know, an event where you'd need uh, that type of nuclear forensics. Um, so it's actually, it was helpful as a training tool. Um, and so that, yeah, so <laughs> working on sort of that process was my master's work um, and then kind of moving on to the, this device and a method uh, for autoregraphic imaging was my PhD research. And in, in your master's, I guess you also, um, not only did you like create this like simulated fallout material, but you then also trained like responders, like, you know, people who would be, I guess, like deployed to sites of, um, like nuclear activity or reactions to like go and like find that material. Right. Uh, yeah, so whenever I was doing my, uh, I did my dissertation research as a, a INL graduate fellow at the Idaho National Laboratory. I mean, so one of the things that the department that I was working in, you know, did is that the, this material was produced to then, you know, spread out um, and then use as a training tool to, you know, collect it and analyze it. Um, and it was sort of regularly done to bring people in that were first responders to, you know, look at that material. Um, yeah, and they like, kind of go through the whole process as a tr training tool. Um, that wasn't necessarily part of any, like, actual academic work. It was just mm. I was, you know, helping with that. And that's kind of where this research stems from. And, and I was working there. Um, actually, for years, <laughs> um, uh, at the end of a sort of my graduate career, I was actually on-site full-time working there. Um, and there's just a lot of stuff getting involved with. But, yeah. Right, because even though you were, like, an OSU student... Um... I guess OSU is partnered with these um, with these national labs, the Idaho National Lab being one of them, the INL. And yeah, like you just mentioned, you spent like the latter half, I guess, of your of your graduate or PhD career out there. Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, as soon as I finished my uh, classwork at OSU, I ended up working full time there mm. until I finished my PhD. Um, and so that was like this program that they have. And I'm pretty sure they still have it. So there's quite a few OSU students that do that. Um, but yeah, it's a really like, it's a great opportunity to actually, you know, go and do real work at a national laboratory and sort of like, whether it's good or not, get out of the like university, um, you know, taking classes, doing research sort of world and getting some like really real world, ex real world experience and, you know, world cross researches, I think mm. they always like to say. Yeah, I actually, before we did our pre-interview, I like did a quick like Google search and I'm pretty sure I found an article that you were one of like the inaugural fellows, right? Yeah, uh, that was Congratulations. the first year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was the first year they had to have the program. Um, and so me and one of my friends who, who's actually still a grad student, a PhD student in nuclear science and engineering, we both came from Oregon State. Uh, he does very different research and like sort of like fuels. And then, you know, I was actually... I think that article talks about my master's research because I hadn't actually figured out what I was doing for my PhD. And they're like, we'll just say you're continuing to do this. But yeah. <laughs> so obviously, you know, your, the goal you were basically set or like the, the end product, I guess, that INL wanted, you know, like a, a, a system or a device that would, you know, 
cut down significantly on on time taken to I guess identify categorize um, fallout material um, as well as I guess what you ended up creating was these audio radiograph images um, is obviously like not a simple thing um, and so it was quite um, there was like several steps that you had to go through which I think are like very neatly laid out in your actual dissertation so let's let's I guess briefly talk about the different chapters and what what those involved so chapter one was oh yeah so the first like part of the research <laughs> uh, which was after the lit review um definitely want to make sure that uh i did that uh the first part was i did simulations using jamp 4 which is a type of radiation transport uh it was like a toolkit um to be able to simulate sort of the radiation transporting through different materials um, but then also this one is unique in that it it can have the production and then the transport um, and then the detection of optical photons so the type of materials using scintillating material um, I looked at different scintillating materials and sort of a, how the light that was emitted and produced by that and sort of the intensity uh, and other attributes like the wavelength um, of different materials that would produce sort of a rapid image so there's like a a time component of diff these different scintillating materials as well as like how much or the intensity of the light or the number of photons it's emitted from a single interaction and that's going to be um it's going to be dependent on or at least for the materials i was looking at that's why it's a good <laughs> material uh, it's going to be dependent on the energy of the radiation that's interacting with that material so i did some simulations to like look at different materials and kind of like, compare with them so that i could sort of inform the design portion of actually this uh, the next chapter uh, of building it and sort of comparing it and then but using that material which I had to get manufactured specifically to the size specifications um, and then other things like surface roughness um, by a company um, because it has, this type of crystal has to be grown in a laboratory so it's really helpful to be able to much cheaper uh, run these simulations and then get that material rather than like I've, I've seen some people where they actually just test a bunch of different simulation materials. Um, so that's one like, really awesome thing about uh, being able to simulate the optical photon production in this particular you know, code. Right, and so that like being able to do all those simulations kind of already narrowed down or like cut down on on different things that maybe you would have had to like tried out through like trial and error in the design phase, which is obviously very efficient. <laughs> um, and then chapter two was the actual designing um, of the um, of your system, um, and I, I think as you mentioned before, the crystal that you used um, wasn't you didn't like design or like I guess make that crystal right. That was done by another lab. Oh well, it's a type of inorganic scintillation crystal. I, I don't know if I already said, but it, it was yttrium. Uh, lutinum oxyorthosilicate doposarium, which had attributes of uh, that would pair well with the type of uh, camera sensor that I had. Um, but yeah, I had to. It has to be grown in a laboratory, and because actually I had to order it like, I think I ordered it in March of 2020. I had to get like special permissions to get it, you know, grown in a company in China because they had sort of actually been able to produce that material again. Whereas pretty much every other company worldwide was shut down um, in their ability to produce this type of scintillation crystal. Um, but yeah, so sort of figuring out the size, the thickness, um, and other things like that. But it's a very special process of how these crystals are grown. But yeah, it was manufactured. Thank goodness. 
um, by the one company that could do it in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, I, I imagine that can't have been easy, especially if that company was in China. Yeah. <laughs> but it got done. <laughs> I guess that's the that's the main takeaway. Um, and then you, so once you designed your system, I guess then you started looking into like calibration sources, right? Because you needed to like, have a way i guess to to like verify that what that that i guess the levels you were picking up were accurate yeah so it was helpful to like be able to sort of figure out the limitations at first of like if i know the activity or how much radiation is being emitted by uh, a particular sample um whereas some other stuff i was testing later it was a lot more variable uh figuring like how long uh, the maximum exposure could be before sort of overexposing the detector. And for that particular type of EMCCD camera, if it gets overexposed, it could be damaged. And so I really tried to first kind of get the parameters down to, you know, this is the maximum, and sort of re relate that with activity, because that'd be really helpful uh, in knowing, first of all, how, you know, much time you have to not be overexposed, but then also helps figure out the, the relationship uh, between being able to get an image much more quickly. So you could figure out you know, how, what's the minimum time as well to get a, a good image um, from, you know, whatever the activity is. Um, and then actually being able to compare, uh, in that chapter I also looked at using different uh, optical photon reflectors to sort of try to improve attributes of the autoradiographic image. But it was actually during this time where I realized that um, it was actually best, um, both in the, like, you know, the quality of the autoradiographic image, but also in, like, the amount of information available is that without using a reflector, um, you this method could image both a traditional image, of, you know, anything non-radioactive, uh, as well as an autoradiographic image. So all at the same time in the same exposure in that sort of minutes, seconds to 50 minutes is the maximum time period. And so that actually provided a lot more information, especially in your ability to like map what you're seeing with what actually that sample is. Uh, and that adds to the whole, you know, this is a reduced time scale uh, part of it, even though it's sort of on the you know, other end of like not requiring a lot of prose processing. This is thing you could just look at and be like, okay. Right, because it's like, yeah, your, your, your device that you created in the end was like cutting down time, like at different steps of the process of like identifying these materials. Yeah. Um, and then finally, it's actually using your, your device on the surrogate materials was kind of the culmination of all of this and success, right? Yeah, um, so fortunately, it kept getting delayed actually because of COVID as well. Um, but sort of there's a production of this material, surrogate, the surrogate spheroid particles, and the particles that I used for the final chapter were one millimeter to 1.5 millimeters in diameter. So they're quite small. Um, they, they, you know, they were in these two sets. Um, and so I had, they had been produced from uh, uranium that was irradiated within that same week and then you have to go through the process of separating it um which was you know that was a thing that was going on while i was trying to finish my phd uh but then being part of that was i got those materials um and then prepped these samples and then imaged them but because of like how much the short-lived vision products or uh, things with really small half-lives decayed i had to do all of the final imaging in one day um and so you know all these different configurations of these like tiny particles um, and taking like multiple images uh, before they decayed, uh, even though they're actually quite high activity uh, relative to their size um, all at once. So that was a thrilling experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I just want to reiterate that for listeners that for Ari's final dissertation chapter, like testing her tool on her on the surrogate material that she had created, she had to do it all in one day. That is, to me, nuts. Yeah, don't tell my <laughs> advisor that's possible. <laughs> well, it took a long time before, but it was like, yeah, trying to get all those like, you know, images before they decayed completely was. Uh, I didn't exactly. I think I didn't tell my advisor until later that it, it all took a day because I know it doesn't sound great, but I think it might be the longest chapter of my dissertation. So, you know, it can be done. <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> That's the part that that we've got to, you know, pass on wide. Wouldn't would not recommend. <laughs> I guess being being someone. Um, and I feel like I had a lot of friends growing up who felt this way too. So maybe I can speak for like a larger group, but being someone who like always really struggled in physics and was always like, I can't wait to not have to take physics anymore. Like how, how did you get here? Like, did you love physics the whole, you know, kind of like your whole childhood or, or was it something that came later in life? Like what was your journey here? I guess. Yeah, so um, I had actually for a long time thought I was going to be an art student or I was interested in pursuing like human rights law or something in that realm. Um, and I would always found, you know, nuclear physics, you know, really interesting, but I just assumed it wasn't really for me because, you know, I assumed or maybe was told when I was in elementary school that I wasn't that mathy and, you know, I was a creative type and, you know, so I was like, I'll see the beauty in it. Um, but uh, so like being interested in sort of like, the effects of sort of nuclear weapons and nuclear detonations um, started when I actually had done a pre-college program in New York City at Barnard College, and I was taking a class that was Indigenous Peoples in the United Nations um, because I was interested in like, you know, the I really wanted to work with the United Nations. I thought that'd be amazing, and you know, it seemed like a really you know worthwhile cause to devote my life to. Um, but we went to the General Assembly Building, which is in New York, and actually in their main lobby they have. Um, the statue, um, which is at Nagasaki, um, and it's of, you know, a saint holding this, like, lamp, and it was actually exposed to the weapon that was detonated there, um, and so you can see one half of it, the front half of it, is completely fine, you know, looks like any other statue that's so, so many years old, but the back of it, which was exposed to, you know, that environment, um, is completely scarred and charred, and, you know, it was a very stark, like still the most intense, you know, visualization of like what that can do um, and like what it has done to, you know, the, the world since that happened, which is actually why the UN exists. Um, and then also they were, this class, they had talked about some, you know, radiation contamination issues and concerns in indigenous, you know, communities and reservations. And so like, you know, had been, been kind of like lightly interested in that before, I was like, quite alarmed by that because, you know, this isn't something that we really talked about around that, you know, time period when I was like high school, middle school, sort of like younger, um, you know, and so it was like starting to really like think about like, this is something that actually requires attention. Like, you know, this is something that, you know, is hurting people and that can hurt people. And so that's sort of like where those two things tied together. Um, and then I ended up, I had been admitted to Oregon State and I was trying to like help my friend figure out like, what you should you do? I was like, oh, study nuclear engineering, like, think of the coolest thing you can think of and like do that. And then I was like, maybe I should just like do that. Like it kind of all clicked at that time. And um, so actually I did my bachelor's at 
uh, Oregon State and just stayed uh, because it was how much I loved my department. I was sort of studying that and, you know, it, it was kind of scary and like hard and intimidating to like kind of having think that that wasn't really my area and then going into it. But, you know, it's not, it's not so bad. <laughs> Shout out to the School of Nuclear Science and Engineering. It really sounds like it's it's like a really welcoming and like environment that I guess inspires and like pushes people and motivates people to keep going and do what they want. Um I think we've slowly reached the end of our time um together. Ari, I I have learned like I feel like so many basic physics things maybe relearned them and also just like very complex things so thank you very much for i guess broadening my knowledge base and mind and i <laughs> love not... that you kind of like resisted or pushed against the notion that you can be like a math person or a not math person or like that you know you either have that side of the brain or you don't i think that's like one of the most harmful things that like uh, elementary math teachers can impart on someone so I love that you just kind of went like nah I can be artsy and I'm gonna do this <laughs> absolutely yeah that was like Brian that was my experience like I was just not good at, at at math physics chemistry as a kid and so people were like oh maybe you should go down this route so yeah Brian, do you want to take us home with our traditions? Yeah, yeah, we have two traditions. Uh, so the first is a piece of advice that can be advice for your past self, your future self, um, other grad students. Um, and then the second is a song that you want us to, to play for the world. Um, so I guess my first piece of advice would be, you know, try to just listen to as many other grad students in as many different fields as you possibly can. I feel like I've gone, you know, pretty far in just like being able to connect and like put things together from like just watching a lot of people's presentations when I was at Oregon State, like, oh, ecology or like people that did, you know, seed research and like things like that because you can learn so much instead of being like siloed at your little area. Uh, and then, I mean, you know, that really helps everyone connect and sort of like work together and, you know, find something new. And so I think that was my biggest thing. And I mean, there's still presentations I saw in, like, undergrad where I'm like, hey, like, that's actually really relevant to work now. Mm. Um, and the first... Yeah, I like that. I think there's <laughs> often, like, crosses between, like, departments or colleges that, like, you wouldn't think of unless you let, yeah, like you said, just, like, go attend and you never know when, like, that click may happen in your brain to, like, oh, actually. <laughs> and if you can't make it seminars, listen to Inspiration Dissemination on seminars. <laughs> <laughs> like that <laughs> um did you have another piece of advice i mean we don't want to limit you um otherwise you know hit us with the song that you want us to outro you on well because my original piece of advice would be like always negotiate your salary like no matter what no matter if you're a postdoc no matter what you're doing if you're an intern like especially now like that would have been my advice a year ago but especially now um and then for the song uh, I had chosen um, a song which translates to uh, All the Faith and Love in the World, uh, which is by the band Lumen, um, and it's a, a very aggressively anti-nuclear weapons um, song by a Russian band, and it's in Russian. I think it's just like a really great way to understand that like, you know, these 
the concerns are very human, uh, and especially, unfortunately, I had picked this song a couple weeks ago, but even lately, you know, you realize that, like, sort of these big issues are not the people, um, and so, you know, it, it's kind of, like, adds a human element uh, to, you know, kind of thinking about those concerns. Um, yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ari. Um, yeah, like I said, this has been very kind of eye-opening to me <laughs> and brain-stretching, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, here is Ari's selection for, for her song. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow this show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Holbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.